What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode lucky 13 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. And in this original segment, I did not give a date, so I have no idea when this the date of this was. But it opens up with Mike doing the ch 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 the whatever the hell that thing is from uh, Friday the 13th. And uh, yeah, so we jump into that. Have fun. What is that? Oh, oh, that's my faithful co-host, Mike. There he is, pretending pretending like he's Predator. How are you doing, Mike? No, no, really what I was doing was uh, do, doing the, trying to do my best to do the infamous or ki-ki-ki-ma-ma-ma. Was that, uh, uh, was that, that wasn't in Predator? Oh, right. Oh, okay. True. Because it's the 13th episode. Yes, uh, I don't have much common sense. Um, thing obvious, the obvious always evades me. Uh, anybody <laughs> else would have known that. I probably shouldn't be announcing things first off if I can't uh, get jokes. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> I'm still coming down from my uh, crack binge of over the weekend. No, I'm just joking. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show and their comments. We're just getting more and more uh, love flowing into the Facebook page and elsewhere. People are starting to interact with the Facebook, I think, almost more than your YouTube uh, thing now, right? Seems well, a little bit, yeah. Um, you know, I have I need to catch up on YouTube, so I just posted the seventh episode, so yeah, I'm way behind. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I, I want people mainly going to, you know, I want people, you know, subscribing to the podcast and the RSS and all that rather than going to yeah. YouTube to listen to it. I don't know who goes to YouTube to listen to a podcast. It's kind of weird, but whatever. Um, I guess if there's nowhere else, you can get it. But um, well, I mean, you know, maybe just people like to have it on their phone that way or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um. I guess just to get all the other stuff out of the way, we have an Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries fan page. You can look that up on Facebook.com slash Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. A lot of people have been finding it, I guess, from me mentioning it. So, awesome. Um, Yeah, so I guess we'll dive right into this because according to a little review we got on our iTunes account, uh, stop the chit-chat and get right to the cases. Oh, sorry! Yeah, they, they said that. That was that was a three star review, man. We need to shut That's the fuck funny. up and get to the cases. We both need to shut the fuck up and get to the cases. Okay. Start right. dancing, you bunch of monkeys. <laughs> this is a free podcast I'm listening to, and I expect top flight entertainment for my free <laughs> non dollars that I'm not paying. <laughs> All right, we gotta shut the fuck up then. Yeah, gotta, gotta love people. Nazca lines. Yes, Nazca lines. That was a picture that I posted on our Facebook page uh with the looked like appeared to be a spaceman in a spacesuit an alien i don't know let's dive into this tale and find out um this starts off by uh, some of this is uh, actually robert stack and the shows like dialogue that kind of type out you know because they just they word things so good sometimes on the show that i'm like i'm not even gonna try to put this in my own words i'm just gonna read what they wrote uh but it starts out with saying they're like enigmatic guests from a vanished time the Sphinx rises inscrutable above the sands of Egypt. Stonehenge, a somber uh, monolith circled in a silent prayer. And the statues of Easter Island with their faces curiously turned away from the sea. In South America, another ancient mystery has defied all who have tried to uncover its secrets. 
Here inexplicably, monumental drawings have been etched into the desert plain where they form uh, where they form to placate angry gods, to map out the heavens, or perhaps to welcome visitors from another galaxy. Welcome to the Nazca Plateau, a hundred miles of unanswered questions in western Peru. So, uh, really, in essence, all this is is huge lines that are made from rocks. Um, and these are big rocks, by the way, too. They're like these big old hunkin' rocks that are just all, I guess, formed together in, uh, to create these lines. Now, that in itself does not sound that spectacular. And the whole well, I think they're etched. I think they're etched into the ground. I don't know if they're rocks. I think they're etched. Oh, right, because there's rocks already on the surface, and they brush the rocks aside to make the line. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. My bad. Um, but, you know some lines that are swept up to make a design wouldn't sound that spectacular, but the whole angle on this is, and the whole mystery about it is these these designs, these etchings in the ground are huge. Yeah, the, they really are. They have a, they, they show on here, they show a gigantic monkey. It could fill two football fields. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, it's not like an amazing, you know, Picasso uh, rendition of a monkey, but I mean, well, Picasso is it really? <laughs> Whatever. Picasso, Picasso's the guy who does abstract art that doesn't even look like the real thing. So yeah. Look, my uh, my maybe like, like maybe like Rembrandt or something, or or you know maybe that's a better. My reference. former my former alcohol soaked mind was reaching for an artist, and that's all it gave me, and so that's what I went with. Um, That's okay. I mean, it kind of is re reminiscent of Picasso paintings. So, anyway, it's it's huge, and and it's a it's a yeah. pretty good monkey. I mean, you can tell it's a monkey, but all these, uh, as they're talking about these segments, they're showing. All of this, I mean, they've got to be in a helicopter or an airplane because that's yeah. the only way you can truly see these drawings or these etchings yeah. is from a fucking aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, laid to end to end, they total 1,000 miles. Uh, there's more than 800 straight lines across this plateau. And yeah, if you lay them end to end, they total 1,000 miles. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of miles. Yeah, that's and, not that's uh, that's not dipping your big toe in the sand and making a line and and forming a pattern on the beach somewhere. I mean, this is like yeah. this is massive. And the evidence suggests that the ancient Nazca is famous for their ceramic art inscribed the giant drawings between 1500 to 2500 years ago. So, these are ancient uh lines that are drawn not really necessarily in the sand, but you know drawn in, in into the ground and it's a very, definitely very fascinating and beautiful thing, really. They're, they're gorgeous, you know, most of the, these lines. Some of them are, are though, kind of not as artistic as others. Because there's one that's just like a bunch of cross-section lines, just a bunch of lines just all over the place. Right. Kind of a clusterfuck. Now, that's not really what I'd call really beautiful. That just looks like some kind of schematic or something or... Uh, some architect, you know, got into the booze and was trying to work on some <laughs> design for a building. And, well, he was too drunk. And that's the result. <laughs> well, I mean, it could go into one of the theories that they present later on in the segment about how this is, uh, you know, th this, this has some kind of, um, you know, 
what's the word it like lines up with the stars it's got so, you yeah. know it lines up with the constellation so i mean that could be the explanation for all the uh clusterfuckness of some of the lines there mm-hmm. um but uh it cuts to robert stack you know after the intro and He's he's out there, you know, on the Nazca plateau, uh, some under some canopy or something, and he says, uh, "Imagine standing on the plateau without modern modern surveying tools, aerial photographs, or topographical maps. How would you map out the monkey? Where would you put its tail, its head? How would you make sure it all fit together perfectly?" Somehow, the ancient Nazca people were able to do exactly that. To this day, nobody has fully explained the drawings or even uh, how they were made, even though many have tried. Um, one of the first archaeologists theorized a plateau was a giant celestial calendar. He observed during the summer the sunset in perfect alignment with one of the markings. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier um, with the clusterfuck of lines. I mean, maybe that has some kind of a significance in that in that aspect. Um, and then uh, the, this other lady, Maria Reiche, who's uh, German. She was a German mathematician. Uh, f- she spent 40 years studying the Nazca lines. Uh, sh- Pretty much every waking hour of her life, she spent studying uh, these lines. Now, that's that's some German dedication for you there that the Germans are famous for. Uh, she concludes. You'd, be, you'd be dreaming about lines all, just every night. Well, see, I, see, what's so beautiful about the lines is they are so straight and so so information, and, and they, I just find them very fascinating, <laughs> and um, I just love, love symmetry. It's beautiful to me, being German. Uh, she concluded the dozens of lines and animal figures point to various constellations. So, 40 years of your life, <laughs> and that's your thesis statement. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> that's what you want to do with your life, Iron. Right, it's cool, I guess. Um, some more, um, erratically different theories were proposed by Eric Von Daniken in the late 1960s. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. A lot of you guys may or may not know who Eric Von Daniken is. He he wrote the book Chariots of the Gods, which is a very controversial book, to say the least. Before Ancient Aliens, there was uh, this guy. There was Von Daniken. Uh, yeah, so before there was that guy with the wild hair going, Aliens! Aliens. There, there was uh, Von Daniken. In the late 1960s, he asserted that some of the markings were nothing less than giant markings for alien spaceships in his book, Chariots of the Gods. Von Daniken suggested that the ancient Nazcas regard the aliens as gods and constructed their runways under their direct orders. One marking pointed the way to the landing strip, and um, then they show the picture that I put on the our Facebook page, so if you want to get like a visual of what we're talking about, um, then they show a portrait of one of the visitors, uh, complete with space helmet. Now these are different than the plateau lines because they are on the sides of mountains. So like that's yeah. even more crazier. And like for mm-hmm. real, one of the one of the huge ass uh, figures that was etched is on the side of this mountain. And again, it has to be taken from aerial view because you just simply couldn't see this image if you were at ground level. It's too big. And I thought, I mean, and so you watched the segment. So when when they actually showed the the actual pointer, that that it almost looked like a uh, like a not a dreidel, but uh, the what's the thing with the candles? Not the yarmulke, not the, uh, a menorah. A menorah. Yeah, it yeah. almost looked like a menorah. Yeah, sorry, or I'm not like Jewish. A, or or an arrow. <laughs> yeah. Or some kind of you know extraterrestrial weird looking arrow, just saying, all right. Here you go. But that was bizarre looking, don't you think? I mean, right that, yeah. 
that was pretty bizarre look i'm looking at a picture right now of it so yeah it's a very it's just kind of it's got these forks on it uh you know it's looks like a pitchfork but it's got like these little things that like end up like going off the sides of it so it kind of looks like mini pitchforks on top of another pitch it's really weird especially compared yeah. to the other lines that you have you it's know like a monkey or or these other just regular lines yeah yeah you know i mean i guess at the end of this i'll get into like what what i guess what my opinion is um so dr reinhardt and other scientists believe the plateau and this is kind of the more popular i guess um opinion of most of the scientists that study this uh they believe the plateau was a giant religious altar to the gods they believed that silent yeah. prayers were whispered here for one precious resource and that would be water um the nazca plateau is one of the driest places on the planet in five years in five good years the plateau can expect a meager one half inch of rain good god that is dry like death valley yeah um I mean, honestly, living out here, and I'm probably sure you can probably relate living out in Washington, um, especially during the season that we're in now. It rains all the damn time, and it's always wet and muddy and mucky and gross. So yeah. I wouldn't mind living in a drier climate, honestly. I don't like living well, in this humid. Yeah, humid is the problem. Uh, dry heat I could deal with. That's why I like it over here in the Pacific Northwest is because it doesn't get humid that often. It just gets cold and wet, but cold and wet is different than humid and wet. So, um, and then we have some really nice springs and summers and things like that that aren't too hot. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely does rain. So a lot in the fall and the winter. So you better get used to that. <laughs> And there's a lot of transplants from California moved to the Pacific Northwest, I've noticed. Like, they moved to Oregon and moved to Portland, or they moved to Seattle, or, they, or not very many moved to Vancouver, but, you know, it's what it is. <laughs> we got a lot of listeners in California, I've noticed. I don't know what that what that's about, um, but that, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, It's I'd, a big state, so, I mean... yeah. Uh, San Francisco is constantly coming up on the the top cities who actually listen to this podcast. So what's up, people in San Francisco? How's it going? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know how the weather is on that, that uh, part of the country. All I know is the south, uh, rainy Florida. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it gets hot and dry, you know, but it's always humid. Humidity is a constant here. Anyway, getting off topic. Um, <laughs> so how were these drawings created? In 1982, an attempt was made to replicate the process using only simple tools that would have been available back to the Nazca people back, you know, 15 to 2,500 years ago. Um, the uh, group took a group of 12. Uh, it took them the whole morning to make a 60-foot curlicue. They used like brooms that they commandeered yeah. from the hotel, and they swept these rocks, you know, away okay. to make a clear consistent path so this is what they did uh um yeah these archaeologists they tried to figure out how the nazcas made the lines they decided to replicate the whole process using the simplest of tools like you mentioned dr anthony f avini a professor at colgate university no no relation to colgate toothpaste darn was among the group of archaeologists <laughs> we this is a quote from him he says we pirated a couple of broomsticks from the local hotel which means you stole them that's what it means <laughs> So they stole some broomsticks from the hotel 
uh, I, I guess, some pieces of string. And uh, did they steal that as well? <laughs> and then they laid out a line. And uh, they said that he said that they proceeded to clean and sweep away the surface of the line. It took us a group of 12 one morning to make a line about 20 yards long, two yards wide, clear it completely. And here was a brand spanking new Nazca line. Yeah. So that was all well and good. And it kind of sort of answered a question to a certain extent about how they were made, but it still doesn't answer the question of how gargantuan figures like the monkey were made, you know, while only being able to see it from ground level without being able to fly. But perhaps they could fly, suggested Jim Woodman, a British author and explorer. And to prove his point, way back in the day, Jim hired Peruvian craftsmen to stitch together a hot air balloon made from material that would have been available at the time the Nazcas made the lines. A raging campfire provided the requisite hot air, and for perhaps the first time in centuries, the Nazca lines were being viewed as intended from hundreds of feet above the desert in the air from a hot air balloon. That's just so cool. That is really to, cool. To think that to imagine that these Nazca, you know, Indians actually figure out a way to fly uh, long before Da Vinci and, and things like that and the Wright brothers and so on. Um, so, and that would make sense. I mean, then they could actually see what they're creating and what the, what's being created from, from the air. That's the only way to see, you know, what they're designing. Uh, uh, the only other way I could think of is that they just, I guess they just did it, just winged it. I think this is a tale. Like, this is going to be the tale. This is going to be this, you know. Uh, but that's kind of hard to believe that it would look so good from the air. Right. If they just winged it. Um, the segment also, had, I think it was, a, I think the segment had like, what was it, like artwork? Is that what they had? Did they have artwork that they put on the on the screen that showed? Yeah, what these, they had a porcelain like vase or something. Primitive uh, hot air balloons might look like. I don't think they actually showed a reenactment of the hot air balloons. No, the they had they had archival footage um, yeah. of this guy's um, a flight that he made essentially. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they and and it showed the uh, massive primitive hot air balloon which looked like a upside down triangle um which yeah, it was really cool looked very freaky to me if i saw that it you know this big ass thing like i didn't know what was going on like aliens yeah it's i'd be freaked out it's a ufo it's a, it's still a really cool image though and it's cool yeah, that they it showed that archival footage of the guy actually doing it um would my ass ever get into a uh, makeshift hot air balloon, which <laughs> which what looked like uh, instead of a basket at the bottom, it was just com- some kind of a, a just like a like a sash a sash of some kind, like a large hammock like sash that you kind of like laid in. Like fuck, no, I ain't getting in that thing. Are you crazy? Like that's I don't know, man. That's ballsy. Like I wouldn't have gotten in that thing. Well, I, I did go up in a hot air balloon when I was a kid, but it was not a very good experience for me because I just spent the entire time turning green, feeling sick, just putting my, basically just holding on to my grandmother for dear life because <laughs> it wasn't very fun for me. Dude, I would be now, terrified. I would never do nowadays, that. Nowadays, I think I could do it because I'm not nearly as afraid of heights as I used to be. But I still think it would be different and weird. And also, I wasn't really in the right position. Like, if I was there, like, where I could hold on to the railing, I couldn't hold on to the railing. 
So if I could hold on to the railing, I think it, it could have been a better experience for me. But yeah, don't have fond memories of my hot air balloon experience. So I definitely would not be getting into that ancient hot air balloon. You know, it's funny. Nope. Like when I was when I was a kid, I was I had what? like almost no fear of heights. And now as an adult, I am like extremely afraid of heights. It's like the opposite of you. Interesting. Yeah, I I the the idea of plane travel scares the shit out of me. Um, so the many scientists believe that the lines weren't supposed to be seen from from up, you know, in an aircraft or anything like that. They were supposed to be experienced at ground level. The lines appear to be like roads, say some of the yeah. uh, people they interviewed. Um, I quoting uh, one of the guys. He said, I, "I imagine a worshiper of a deity deity would walk this path while praying to the deity or deities having to do with that particular animal." Um, so it would be some kind of like meditative kind of walk that you do on this path while praying to a, a deity of some kind. So that I can see that to a certain extent. There's other ones that doesn't seem like like the arrow, like pitchfork looking thing, or the I don't really see how that's pertaining to some deity, or right? But I mean, there, there's a possibility of that, and I, I do understand that thought process, and I can get it, but. It just doesn't explain how well detailed these images are from the from the sky. I mean, I I mean I would think that would be rather difficult. Like I was saying earlier, to just oh just fucking do it just to be like a path, and it just all it just it just looks like a monkey. I mean, just because it just I it's I don't know I don't know about that. Seems like it, it seems like if they were meaning for it to be um, observed, that's too convenient. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if they were gonna do it from the ground and the lines were meant to be experienced from the ground, it seems like there'd be like a hundred easier ways to do it than how yeah, they ended exactly. up doing it. Yeah, I mean, the spider is one that they show. It's this ginormous spider, and the line yeah. starts and ends at the same spot, and it's like yeah. that's nuts. I mean, the the lines. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the, the line starts and it forms like the outer uh, figure of the spider, and then it forms the inner figure of the spider, and then the the line leaves on you know like next to where the first line began. So it makes like this outline of a spider, and it's like there are just. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you're gonna make a, a some path to worship some spider god, which I don't know what sounds more terrifying than a spider god, but <laughs> I mean, it just seems like you could have done it in such easier ways and, and uh, or you could have just made like a more primitive design, but this thing yeah. is just magnanimous. And and, that's and probably the, the wrong one. And you have the whole thing too, where it's such an enormous design that, what, I'm supposed to believe these people walk this path? Like how long is, how long are they walking out in this hot ass desert sun? That's you true. Know, yeah. For their pilgrimage or whatever. I mean, these are huge. These these uh, designs span miles. So, uh, how do you know you're on the right path? You, I mean, I would think you could get lost fairly easily. And also, I mean, how long is this pilgrimage going to take? Are you even going to make it to the end of the? you know, line, or, or did they actually walk throughout the whole thing, or did they just step one foot into one part of it, or whatever, and then do their, uh, you know, religious ceremonies, or whatever. We don't know, because we don't have any footage or, or any really proof of what these Nazcas did 
in these lines or designs. And they've, we have they've been long dead. Long stuff dead. Stuff that's been left behind. Yeah. One, one thing I do... One thing I, I, I've always thought about all these kind of ancient mysteries, um, these huge monolithic things, as w- whether it be the pyramids or the Sphinx or the Easter Island heads or anything like this. And, I, you know, the, the Easter Island heads have always really fascinated me as well. Um, yeah. It, same with, like, like, masterpieces of classical music that were composed by Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, uh, etc., paintings what have you back in those days there was no facebook there was no internet there were no smartphones there was no coloring books there was no tv there was nothing you had nothing literally nothing better to do with your time rather than work you know in in some or way great lines <laughs> yeah like farm you know go out and kill something and you know whatever else you're gonna do to pass time so people had so much less distraction back then to create something of substance from the from pure human sheer human will than i think people do nowadays because there's just there's so much distractions now i mean for fuck's sake for us to sit down and do this podcast you know the amount of planning (laughs) that it takes for us to like set aside this time every week just to do this like back in the day we'd have a new podcast every single well i guess a podcast form wouldn't exist but you could come to me and mike's hut and we would tell you stories of wonder and mystery every single day because we'd have that kind of time because we'd have nothing yeah. better to do. Exactly. I don't know why me and Mike are living together in a hut. That's that's <laughs> in itself is dubious. But any either way, I mean, that's another thing that goes into things. The, these kind of mis- mysterious kind of legends and stuff. It's like these people had some time on their hands. They so had too much time on their hands. Clearly, although it's quite incredible and all, it's like it's just it. I, being from the time period that we are in, in in the 21st century or the 20th century, whatever. It's just uh, hard to imagine doing that and right. spending all the time to do something like that. Because it must have taken years, you would think, right, to complete these designs. And, you know, I would think it would be hot. It would be sweaty. It would be uncomfortable. Wouldn't be any fun. So, you know, because you're not really going to see the design that you're making. You're just moving rocks. <laughs> and the only way you're going to see it is if you just dare to get into that janky-ass hot air balloon. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, we're always imposing our limitations onto other people and, and other people. That's understandable. Yeah. I try not to do that, though. I try to think, like, yeah. okay, you know, maybe they didn't have to see it from the air. But then you get into like the arrow, that weird looking arrow, and you get into the the portrait in the mountain. You know, it's not exactly a new theory that aliens helped, you know, build the pyramids and aliens gave uh, primitive man um, instructions, if you will, or, or alien technology to help us advance as quickly as we have advanced in the last a thousand, you know, a thousand years or whatever, you know, these are not new theories that I'm talking about now. This has been suggested for a long time in various circles, you know, that aliens did kind of come in, 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 in hieroglyphics even, you can see like what appear to be, you know, little green men coming down from the sky or, or what depicts UFOs or whatever. So this like is Stargate. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So this has always been, you know, kind of, uh, thrown around 
as theories anyway. So, you know, I mean, it wouldn't, I guess my end thesis are, if I'm summing it all up, none of it would surprise me. If it was like a, a, a worshiping, a place of worship, whatever, um, I, I kind of feel like there's something fishy involved just because the sheer size of these and the man in the mountain or the thing in the mountain that's a pierce. The owl man. Yeah, it's got these big eyes and no mouth and this like helmet, you know, look, you know, which kind of fits the MO of a gray. And I, that's what all I'm going to say. I feel like there's something fishy with these lines as far as how they were formed, the size of them, the thing in the mountain. That's what makes it so fascinating to me. And that's, that, that's all I, that's, that's all I got for it. For me personally, I don't, you know, I like like you. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a extraterrestrial connection to these lines, but I tend to lean to the side of it's not really something extraterrestrial. It's it's more of the spiritual thing, or or and stuff like that. I mean, I look at the Native Americans, like a lot of their totem poles and things like that. I know it's nothing as crazy as these lines, but they also have you know these animals and these designs that you know, represents these gods or spiritual deities that they worship. So I, I can, I kind of lean towards that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it could be extraterrestrial religion, but the thing that I, the fun, but the thing that I find the most interesting is just the lines themselves. I mean, yeah. how they were created, how you can see them so vividly from the air and so on. And apparently there's also some, uh, Interesting, but also tragic developments with the lines because uh, pollution and erosion is occurring in the area, the region, uh, which is uh, caused by deforestation. Um, People are trying to preserve them, which is understandable because I honestly do think they're works of art. Uh, And after flooding and mudslides in the area in uh, mid-February 2007, uh, Mario Olachea Acuye, archaeological resident from Peru's National Institute of Culture, and a team of specialists surveyed the area. He said that mudslides and heavy rains did not appear to cause any significant damage in the Nazca lines, but the nearby southern Pan American Highway did suffer damage, and the damage done to the roads should serve as a reminder to just how fragile these figures are. In 2013, machinery used in a limestone quarry was reported to have destroyed a small section of a line and caused damage to another. In December 2014, Greenpeace activists irreparably damaged the Nazca lines while setting up a banner within the lines of one of the famed geoglyphs. What? The activists damaged an area around the hummingbird by grinding rocks into the sandy soil. Access to the area around the lines is strictly prohibited, and special shoes must be worn to avoid damaging the UN World Heritage Site. Greenpeace claimed activists were absolutely careful to protect the Nazca lines, but this is contradicted by video and photographs showing the activists wearing conventional shoes, not predictive shoes, while walking on the site. Greenpeace has apologized to the Peruvian people, but Luis Jami Castillo, Peru's vice minister of cultural heritage, called the apology a joke because Greenpeace refused to identify the vandals or accept responsibility. Culture Minister Diana Alvarez Calderon said evidence gathered during the investigation by the government would be used as part of a legal suit against Greenpeace. The damage done is irreparable, 
and apologies offered by an environmental group aren't enough, she said to a news conference. This also directed attention to other damage to geoglyphs outside of the World Heritage Area caused in 2012 and 2013 by the Dakar Rally. Wow. So, fuck you, Greenpeace. Sounds real peaceful. <laughs> going going to a natural site and just fucking things up. So, I mean, you know. Very green of you, Greenpeace. You really. can you can say, well, what about all the big corporations? Yeah, I agree with you, but you're not you're not helping the problem by also fucking things up. <laughs> Jeez. Well, that's uh, that's disheartening, but I mean, you know. All the fucking just, wonders of the ancient world are gone, except for the Sphinx. Um, so, I mean... Well, it, even the Sphinx, I mean, it's been damaged for a long time. Hell, the, um... Wasn't... D- didn't didn't one of the famous work of art get damaged recently? Like, uh, the Mona Lisa or something? I don't know for sure, but, yeah. Something like that. Um, oh, no, no, no. It was King Tut's uh, little beard thing on... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that came off because they they yeah. were I guess cleaning it and they they fucked it up somehow. So I mean this this shit's gonna happen, you know. Um, yeah, something that's that ancient, but with the Nazca lines, these Greenpeace people weren't even supposed to be there. Oh, what a surprise! <laughs> I'm not even gonna get into my opinion on Greenpeace because uh, well, I mean honestly, I really don't have much of an opinion. I think I just wanted to share that because I just thought it was kind of interesting and and it shows you that. There's, the Nazca lines are still somewhat relevant today because that was a fairly recent incident. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and, and, you know, we like to do that whenever we can. You know, any kind of new information we can bring you because God knows the show isn't going to come back on in any kind of form that Even we though like. it's got 3, 000, over 3,000 signatures on the petition, you know, to have it streaming on Netflix or Hulu or whatever... Yeah, but uh, if you if you think of the grand scheme of things, that, that isn't nearly enough um, signatures... Well, surprisingly enough, I mean, the Exorcist 3 uh, director's cut, uh, I signed a petition for that, and I think that had less signatures, and Scream Factory is just now releasing the director's cut on Blu-ray in October, so I don't know if that was a hint, maybe the, the petition had signatures, so the studio realized that there was interest in it, or, or not, but, I mean, you never know. Uh... I, I, I personally think, uh, you know, this Crob, Cosgrove and Terry Moyer, you know, they need to rethink their, uh, I understand, oh, uh, the rights with the actors and the people, whatever, and so on. Uh, it, maybe it wouldn't cost as much to get them renewed as they think. I don't know. Um, first, I mean, that's the thing. It's one of those things up in the air. Although I did watch a recent video that they have on their website, and they did have footage from the show in it, so that makes me think, well, maybe you can do this. <laughs> my but... my thought is if they're gonna if they're gonna do any kind of renewal, uh, or if they're gonna bring uh, anything back to or or not bring back, but if they're gonna bring it to Netflix or Hulu or something like that, my thought is they're gonna reach some kind of settlement with the actors guilds, um, and and they're yeah. they're gonna pay some kind of lump sum. Um, and I don't think that should be too bad. Yeah, instead uh, of paying royalties every time an episode's aired, I think I think they just pay some kind of lump sum to the guilds and and just kind of be. Yeah. But see, that's got to be so costly, and you know, yeah. there's so much. And then then the question comes into play: Well, well, 
how much content do we put on there? Do we put all, you know, however many seasons uh, on on the streaming site? Do we only put a few? Do we add more later? You know, that's a lot of actors that you're having to pay. I don't know. It's 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 really uh, kind of convoluted in a way. It sucks, though, because, you know, you, you would think it wouldn't be that complicated because so many other shows have gotten on there, like fucking Seinfeld's on there. You know, that was one of the top-rated show yeah. sitcoms of all time, and that you know that's on Hulu for fuck's sake. You know, you'd think Unsolved Mysteries would be able to get on there too, but I mean, I guess Seinfeld is a much yeah, smaller. Yeah, Forensic Files. Forensic Files is on there as well. So. Yeah, someone else was bringing up that point that Forensic Files was was on there, yet this show isn't. I don't know. It's 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 that's been the biggest Unsolved Mystery for me since day yeah. one. <laughs> anyway, speaking of uh, mysteries, uh, this is not this is one that well, it's t- it's solved now, uh, but it's uh, a still very interesting case, I thought, and there are some mysterious things about this. Uh, the Dennis DePew case, which is actually uh, the the four film Jeepers Creepers, the opening segment, is heavily inspired by this case. This was a request, was it not? Yeah, this is a request of somebody on YouTube who was saying, like, are you going to do episodes on stuff that's not on the box set? You know, because it's kind of the, he was like, I'm tired, you know, kind of like, you know, it's one of those, like, everyone talks about the stuff that's on the box set. And, you know, talk about, because I, I, you know, because he's like, I have to, like, skip certain things and whatever and so on. And, well, this one's for you. So yeah, Oh, really? Everybody talks about the things from the box set? Last time I checked, there's no videos on YouTube about <laughs> anything Unsolved Mysteries related or uh, podcast form or anything. So I don't know where you're g- going to these secret communities of people who just talk ad nauseum about the Ultimate Collection, but... Pretty sure we're one of the only games in town that talks about anything Unsolved Mysteries related. Maybe they talk about the forums, but the forums is a different animal. Uh, Yeah. That's boring, though. That's just, you're just, like, reading shit constantly, you know? Like, we're we're actually talking, like, audio. And then you're waiting. You're waiting for someone to respond. Yeah. That's that's what it was like in the past, though, before podcasts and before Skype. Boo. <laughs> Boo to reading. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, I, I'm surprised they didn't make an Unsolved Mysteries book. I really was shocked that they never did that. Citing has, Sightings has two different books. Uh, Rescue 911 has a book. Really? I was just absolutely stunned that Unsolved Mysteries never had a book. America's Most Wanted has one. So I was just surprised they never made one. That was like a tie-in to, this, to the show, like in like the 90s or something. That talked about some of the cases and maybe featured some pictures and so on, or maybe some behind the scenes info on how they did certain segments of the show and so on. It's almost uh, as if public, or it's almost as if Unsolved Mysteries was like a public service to more more than like anything else, almost like an NPR kind of thing. It's like it. Well, yeah, they didn't America. really go out of their way to make mo- make money. You know, they did. Yeah. There was no merchandise, hardly. There's no merchandise. There's just fan fan stuff years down the road. Um, but yeah, it was surprising. There's no nothing like that. You would think it was a pretty big show that CBS had, or some, you know the Cosgrove, you know Cosgrove Memorial would try to do something like that, but I guess not. Uh, but America's Was Wanted did had had a book, but. Yeah, America's, America's Most Wanted uh, aired around the same time Unsolved Mysteries did, if I remember correctly, in the late 80s. And there were cases that were featured on this show that were also featured on America's Most Wanted. 
Huh. Well, anyway, getting to this case. Um, Easter Sunday, 1990. A lonely road 12 miles outside Coldwater, Michigan. I wonder how the temperature of the water was there. But don't... Um, Megan Lee Porter set off on a routine Sunday outing. Uh, little did they know they'd become involved in a strange and ominous mystery. All of a sudden, a van came up behind them and passed them. They would make this game of coming up with names from license plates, and this couple probably isn't the coolest couple in the world. You wouldn't exactly want to invite them over to your house for Cards Against Humanity night. But um, uh, Ray came up with, uh, he was saying, um, his wife came up with this, because um, the guy's license plates number started with GZ, so she came up with the phrase, geez, he's in a hurry, because GZ, get it? Oh, God. What a winner. Um, as they approached an old schoolhouse, um, they saw a man behind it. And this was a creepy abandoned schoolhouse. It was a creepy looking schoolhouse. Perfect yeah. perfect place where you'd see a where you where you'd want to see a man with a bloody sheet behind it. And that's what yeah. they saw. They saw a man, Dennis DePew, uh, with a bloody sheet, um, and they saw the van parked between a big water tank and the school. Um, as they were driving, um, minutes later, the van pulled up behind them and started riding their bumper for about two miles. They already had the first two letters of his license plate from playing that stupid game they wanted to do earlier. And um, a nervous Ray, the husband, pulled off the highway. But when he did that, the van just stopped in, in the middle of the road. So they were ballsy enough to turn around and get behind them and try to get the rest of his license plate, which at that point, though, they noticed he was changing plates. That's sketchy. Uh, when they came yep. back up behind him, the passenger door they saw was covered in blood, and they show this in the in the segment. They show the passenger door open. It's, like, covered in blood. And, uh, it's a very memorable uh, segment to me for that whole sort of scenario. I mean, this couple just shits and giggles, just driving around the neighborhood, just going around playing a game license plates you know playing a game with license plates and then the wife sees a bloody sheet somewhere and then they decide to investigate usually that doesn't end well to the people who investigate this kind of stuff yeah and they were being really like nosy about it too yeah. like they were really asking for you know asking for trouble i mean me being the kind of person i am i would uh get the fuck out of there with the quickness and i'd call the police and just tell them the location I'd tell them about it yeah, yeah. Let them handle it. I wouldn't go, you know, detective, uh, fucking, uh, you know, by I myself. I wouldn't go, you know, Encyclopedia Brown over there. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes on the shit. Sherlock Holmes on this shit. No way. <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown. <laughs> <laughs> can that can that be your name? That would be awesome. <laughs> um, IMDb Brown. Um, uh, so uh, they went they. The Thorntons, which is their last name, the nosy couple, uh, they thought something unspeakable had happened, and they would be correct, and they went back to the schoolyard to search around for where the dude was, because, I mean, I guess after he was changing his plates, he got out of there, and so they went back to the schoolyard. Um, in the back by a fence, there was a bloody sheet that was partially shoved in an animal hole. Uh, Ray and Marie, which I got the name wrong, I think I said Meg and Lee... <laughs> earlier uh ray and, and marie thornton uh chanced upon a tragic crime and the thorntons had witnessed the final chapter of a marriage and a family that had 
come to a dramatic end um and they were just kind of witnessing the last part of that um yeah. then then the show flashes back to um, the couple that this case is talking about Dennis and Marilyn Depew um to all outward appearances Dennis and Car- uh, Marilyn Depew lived a middle class life and together they raised three healthy children when beneath I got to the- be honest though Depew when they show a picture of him he looks like a creeper I mean, he's got dark circles under his eyes. He looks like the bastard love child of Freddie Mercury and Steve Buscemi. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's definitely somebody that just looks like... He, he just he, at- his last name suits him. He looks like he, a Depew. Pew would definitely be in this guy's last name. He looks very, very smelly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, they're, they're living this happy middle-class existence, and, but beneath the surface, though, there was smoldering tensions that began to come up. Um, Dennis three children as well. Yeah. The, Dennis became very sullen. Uh, he, he started accusing Marilyn of turning the children against him. Uh, she would say that, in general, that she was unhappy to her co-workers and everything, and then eventually... In 1989, after 18 years of marriage, uh, Marilyn Depew finally gave up. Uh, she wanted to be her own person. She felt that Dennis was trying to domineer her life and run it his way. Uh, according to Dennis's attorney, um, he, well, Mar- okay, I should say Marilyn filed a divorce. When I say she gave up, she filed for a divorce. Uh, according to Dennis's attorney, he was willing to give her whatever she wanted as far as property was concerned, and Dennis didn't really want this divorce to happen. Uh, despite Dennis's attempts to keep the family intact, the divorce became final. Dennis was granted bi-weekly visit- visitation rights to his children, and um, the he was also allowed to use, I guess, some kind of guest house they had on their property that he ha- had converted into some kind of a business office. Um, but Dennis just used that at that office as a way to still control the family because he would still, like... Even though they changed the locks in the house, he would still find a way to get in, and yeah, they would. This is so fucked up. Yeah, they'd come home, and he'd he'd just be in the house, and he'd still try to like control and domineer Great. them. They should have saw that coming though, with giving him yeah. rights back onto the property. You know, I don't know why they gave him rights to get back on the property anyway. That was not a good move in the first place. Yeah, I mean, if if the if the woman if Marilyn knew that this was a problem and, and he was a jackass, then you know, w- wouldn't it make sense to just you know keep him at arm's length? You know, uh, uh, have a restraining order against him. But like we said earlier, you know, in the, the previous episode, you know, that's easier said than done. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I should also note that the children were like really reluctant to spend any time with him. Anytime he wanted to like have visitation, the kids were very reluctant to go. Um, so Den- uh, Dennis's coworker said that Dennis indicated just out of nowhere one day that he was contemplating suicide and murder. So obviously this is the kind of guy, uh, very typical in these, these, uh, unsolved mysteries shows here in the murders, uh, cases, uh, very controlling, very insecure, you know, he, he put his value and self-worth, I guess, in, you know, having a family and having that, that whole nuclear family kind of, uh, image of the perfect wife and kids and home and all that was being torn away from him. And he wasn't really happy with that. So Easter Sunday of 1990, Dennis was going to pick up two of his children after the younger child, Julie, had already refused to go with him. 
Um, Dennis went into the house and he went to grab his son and physically force him to go with him for the visitation. But then Marilyn intercepted him in the hallway and they got into this huge argument. You know, it was typical spiteful husband, ex-husband versus ex-wife kind of argument. Like, Mm. you're always interfering. And she's like, if he doesn't want to go, he doesn't have to go. And then he started pushing her. And I, you know, and I can't stress the fact that this is all happening right in front of the kids. And this is what's truly uh, disturbing about this whole part to me. He starts pushing her and he's like, I hate you. I hate you in front of the fucking kids. And eventually he fucking pushes her ass down a flight of stairs and pushes yeah. her down into the basement. And then he, and again, in front of the kids, then he goes down the stairs and he starts beating her again yeah. in front of the kids. Dennis, you know, and, and as a kid, man, seeing your mom being pushed down a flight of stairs, instantly me as a kid, I was so sensitive, I would have burst into tears right then and there. Yeah. And then seeing my dad go down there and beat my mom even more, oh my shit, I would have just lost my mind. Then Dennis yeah. forced Marilyn up the stairs, and she was in a daze, and he told the kids, I'm taking her to a hospital. She had blood, too, all over her shirt. Right, and I'm sure the kids yeah. were just, like, awestruck with, like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Um, uh, just, what did daddy do? Just quickly, I mean, I remember uh, being over at a family member's house when I was a kid. I mean, my, my parents would get into heated arguments when I was a kid, but they never, ever... It never got to the point of where I was you know, scared or sad or anything like that. But I went over to my uh, family member. I won't say who my family member um, the house one time. I would hang out with their son and um, my, the husband came home and got into an argument with the wife. And uh, I was watching this from the hallway. It was a long hallway and I was at the end of the hallway and I was watching them in their bedroom or whatever. And my, um, the family member, the husband had a carton of eggs in his hand and uh, he threw it at his wife and I didn't see it, the wife or whatever, but I saw him throw the eggs and, and just seeing that alone really, really bugged me. So this where he's like pushing her down the stairs and beating her. Oh my God, dude, I, I don't even know how I, I, I would just, cause I loved my, you know, I love, yeah. um, obviously I still do, but you know, I'm very, you know, very close to both of my parents, so that would have been really, really it bad. Would have been a very harrowing experience for anyone. Yeah, but it gets so much worse. Um, yeah, it he does. says I'm taking to. He says I'm taking to her hospital. The well, the Depews never arrived at the hospital. The hospital never happened. Um, at this point, uh, before all this happened, um, one of the older kids called the cops. The cops immediately started searching for the missing couple, and it was that very same day that the nosy Thorntons, um, the couple, the, the license plate game, found a bloody blanket in the schoolyard. Um, the authorities started to assume the worst. Marilyn Depew was probably dead. Uh, deputies discovered fresh tire tracks and a pool of blood over by the schoolhouse. A track matched Dennis's van. The blood was Marilyn's. Uh, the next day, a highway worker discovered Marilyn's body... Uh, she it was in some ditch or something. She had been shot once in the back of the head. Uh, her mother said it was so brutal and premeditated it makes you angry. If she had been killed in an automobile accident, you could get over that, but not this. And that's that's a common thing that a lot of the family members say in these unsolved yeah. mystery segments. If it had been an accident, I could forgive that, but this, you know, it, you can never get over. Um. So the next day, Dennis sent wild and rambling letters to friends and family in which he tried to justify Marilyn's death. 
Uh, he sent a letter to co-worker Jan Markowski, and he wrote, quote, Marilyn had many, many opportunities to treat me fairly during this divorce, and she chose to string it out, trick me, lie to me, and when you lose your wife, children, and home, there's not much left. I was too old to start over. It's like he was trying to say it was everyone around Marilyn's life's yeah. fault and not him, even though he Typical was Typical sociopathic response. Yeah. Even though he was the one who pulled the trigger. Right. Exactly. What a dick, <laughs> to say the fucking least. Pew. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I really, I'm really, I really don't even want to make any light of this case because it's just so no, horrible. Um, it is a horrible case. The poor mother, man, was so distraught by the murder. She was talking about, and she's like, "I think about this every day," you know. And it's just like they're interviewing the mother, and you just, God, you, you feel the gravity of the situation. And that's where the original segment ends. However, there's an update. Now, I want to say in Unsolved Mysteries, there are three kinds of updates you get on the show. There was the lifetime exclusive updates where you just got this foggy background and some text saying whether the perp was caught or whether he died or whatever. Then you get the second kind of Unsolved Mysteries update, which shows a little bit of news footage of the perp either entering or exiting a courtroom or police car with a little bit of narration over it from Robert Stack. Then, then you get you get the legit <laughs> update. Yeah. Where they actually had camera and crew out on the field shooting another reenactment. And that's how uh -huh. that's how you know you're about to get the good stuff. When Robert exactly. Stack when Robert Stack has to dust off his trench coat to reveal more details about a segment, that's how you know it's gonna be a legit ass update. And that's what we got with this one. We got like like ten minutes more show uh with this update. Uh more reenactment and everything. Um a woman that asked that we call her Mary arrived at her home in Texas. Her boyfriend Hank was already home, but his car was, or his van, I should say, mm -hmm. was parked outside the garage, which was unusual because normally he parks in the garage. He told her his mom was very ill and he needed to make an emergency trip. She was sure that something else was really going on, and uh, the TV in the living room was playing the Unsolved Mysteries segment. Uh, one thing I liked about this uh, reenactment that they do, um, the image wasn't burned in uh, during post-production. No, it, it was actually the real show. Yeah, it was actually the real yeah. Unsolved Mysteries show on the TV on that I set. I love that. I love that part of that uh, update segment because it just it makes things so much more surreal and you know makes things stand out. It's like a show within the show. Yeah. You know? One thing I'll mention, I guess, mysteries inception over here. I'll mention to the listeners who may not know that what terminology I just used. Um, on every TV show you ever watch, uh, whether it be a sitcom or a movie or, or you know just a regular TV show, um, if there's ever a point where the actors are watching TV or watching a, a news reel or something in the program. Uh, the image that they're watching is usually a green screen on on a fake television. Uh, they're never actually watching a live, you know, an actual television that's working and turned on. Um, they're just looking at a green screen and they're acting around, you know, whatever the footage is supposed to be that they're looking at. And then what they do in post production is a technique called uh, known as burning in the image, where they go and and put the actual image that's supposed to be there. Um, on TV, on the TV green screen and in, in post, so it, it looks like you know the final product looks like they're actually watching. For me, it's like, wouldn't it be easier just to have a real TV that works and then have the footage on the TV and then have the actors act to that footage? Um, I mean, see, the problem with that is 
because of, you know, the various inner workings of television screens and the lighting and everything, you, you don't, a lot of times you wouldn't get like a super crisp uh, image. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, especially old CR, uh, CRT TVs. Uh, they had a lot of, oh, yeah. Yeah. Flickering. Well, nowadays, you know, they have, they, they do, they use like a, an eight flat screen nowadays and you can shoot that fairly well. Yeah. Yeah. You could. Um, it just wouldn't be as crisp, but I mean, they've gotten better with it. it like back in the day when you'd see burned in images, it was so obvious. Like yeah. you could always tell around the borders of the TV. It just right. didn't look quite right. The, the, the shot, there was no shadows or anything. It just looked like yeah. a flat, you know, just like a, just a flat sur- 2d surface. Um, but they didn't do that with this one. That was kind of a rabbit trail, but I, 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 I noticed little things like that in the show and I really liked how they actually had a, an actual TV with the image on there in this reenactment, um, with the unsolved mystery show. Like you said, it was like a show within a show. It was kind of cool. Um, they, they usually never do stuff like that. So that was kind of no. cool, you know, that was uh, different. That was unique. Um, so the anyway, um, oh, I also want to say that um, let me make a note of that so I can edit all that bumbling out just then. <laughs> clocking in at one hour about. Um, so now we're in this moment of uh, shit that I'm going to edit out anyway. Um, I'm going to play at the end of uh, this one and the end of the next one we're going to talk about. I'm going to actually play um, the Robert Stack. Yeah, the, the, the audio. Cool. The end. The uh, end yeah. of the show. Yeah. Um, before we do the next one, I'll probably take a little bit of a break. That's cool. Keep cat and so on. I'll let you know. You can edit it out and so on. All right. Um. Anyway, going back to to this. Um. I also really like the house in this reenactment. Like, it's an old living room, uh, old furniture, just an old, like, it reminds me of my grandparents' old house. Um, these are small details yet again. A lot of times in these Unsolved Mystery shows, the houses are very old and kind of vintage. They have that 60s feel to them. Um, I really like that. Um, reminds me of growing up. Because, like, like I said, my grandparents had a house that looked very much like a lot of these houses there in the you show. watched Unsolved Mysteries with your grandpa- grandparents, right? So then that kind of ties into that, right? Yeah, exactly. It all help, adds to the nostalgia factor. Um, so anyway, Depew, or Hank, as he's being called, uh, he was, you know, in a hurry to leave, and he told his wife, uh, to who's being asked that we call her Mary or whatever, um, he asked her to make her some sa- make him some sandwiches, you know, as he's just gathering everything up, which is kind of the stereotypical. That's make me a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, go make me a sandwich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he left in a hurry, and like she went to go hug him lovingly and all, and he just gave her a cold, quick kiss on the cheek, and then he left, and she knew that she'd never see him again. She was um shocked to learn that Hank Queen, which was the name he was going by, was actually Dennis DePew, and he had been featured on the Unsolved Mystery episode that night when he was leaving. Yeah. Uh, he saw the episode and was deliberately keeping her attention diverted so he could leave. Now, my question there is, like, why he didn't he just turn the TV off? Anyway. Yeah. It, sh- it shows, though, the impact of the show. Yeah. In, in a really nice way, because it's like, wow, like, some of these criminals, and apparently that is how it is. Sometimes criminals... They do. Uh, they do watch, you know, the Unsolved Mysteries episode that features them, or they watch the America's Most Wanted segment that features them. Because sometimes these people are just 
fucked in the head most of the time anyway so they're like oh i'm a celebrity now good All right. yeah <laughs> they get off on that shit so um so the the wife calls in and she provided the uh, texas license plate of the van to the authorities and just across the louisiana state border dennis's life came dennis's dennis is whatever his life came to a violent end he led police on a high-speed chase and broke through two police barriers um if the van refused to stop uh the off the um, sergeant or whatever he commanded uh the officers to shoot out the tires uh they tried to shoot out the front tire and missed but did take out both back tires which stopped his van after depew shot at the police twice through his front window and once through the driver's side window depew turned the gun on himself and took his own pathetic sniveling meaningless life it pisses me off because he didn't get justice right i hate it when criminals like that do that you know they should be tried they should be sent to jail or given the death penalty they shouldn't be you know the them taking the easy way out just pisses me off because it doesn't really give the victims, you know, parents, it doesn't give their family members, you know, real justice, you know. Yeah, he's dead and he's not going to hurt anyone else, but... He got to leave yeah. on his own terms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is bothersome. All right, moving on to our final case, which was uh, one of Mike's picks, uh, is Tina Resch. Um... She was, uh, she had the kind of the psychokinesis stuff going on. She could move things with her mind and the whatnots. Uh, this was actually pretty compelling, though, because they have a bunch of, uh, they have a, a picture that I believe that we posted on the Facebook of her actually, uh, moving a phone with her mind. And they have a picture of the phone in mid flight across the room. And she's got this, like, shocked look on her face. It's a really cool picture. Um, it really is. I love Whether it. Whether it's a hoax or not. I don't know. That's that. That's up to interpretation. Um, yeah, I saw this segment and I was like really blown away by this. I was like, this is really interesting. And there's also a uh, tragic, but also fairly interesting uh, extra side to this case that was not featured in the segment because this happened afterwards. And I don't even know about this, folks. So this is gonna be this is gonna be news to me as well. So I'm I'm pretty excited to hear about this. But before that. We're going to do some foreplay on your brains with uh, all the other deets of uh, this case. Deets is short for details. We're trying to make this podcast more hip with the kids, so I'm going to start shortening words for no reason. Okay, so Tina Rash was 14 years old, um, and she was in the center of a frightening vortex. Household objects took on a life of their own. Were they poltergeists? Were they demon infestations? Or was it a hoax? October 26, 1969, Columbus, Ohio. Tina's mom brought her to the hospital and then disappeared. So her mom dumped her off at the hospital and bailed. Uh, Joan and John Resch took her in as a foster child. Uh, the Reshes had five kids of their own and foster kids and all that. These were good people, obviously, for taking it. Anybody who takes in foster kids have, have a tremendous heart. Um at age of eight, uh, Tina was diagnosed as being hyperactive. Uh, she was throwing erasers, causing tantrums in school. And uh, the mom asked, well, did you see Tina throw the eraser? And the teacher said, well, no, I didn't see her do it, but I'm sure it was her. And um, the teachers made, like, a big deal about, like, giving her medication in front of all the other kids instead of, like, doing it off to the side, I guess, as a way to, like, embarrass her or humiliate her, which I thought was really fucked up. Yeah, that really was. Good that Lord. was really, 
really mean. So, Teachers shouldn't be doing that. So, you know, since kids are so understanding and tolerant, Tina had a really easy time in school. No, I'm just joking. The exact opposite of that happened. Um, Tina's parents actually had to take her out of school because kids were bullying her. And at one point, they even tied her up and taunted her mercilessly. Uh, Tina stayed at home with her private tutor and everything seemed calm. Subconsciously, though, Tina was under tremendous stress. Um, and she was with her parents 24-7. She never really left the house much. She was with her tutor. She would leave to go to church every now and then and, and this, that, and the other. And um, But, I mean, she was basically home, you know, from she was insulated from outsiders. March 24th, reality began to go askew. And it shows in the scene the mother's in the kitchen washing the dishes and the hands on the clock on the side of the cabinet just started going around and around at a very fast pace. And then at that same moment... A light came on above the clock. At first, um, Joan thought that uh, Tina was playing a prank on her. And Tina, like, walks into the kitchen at this point. And she's like, Tina, you know, why, why are you turning the lights on and off? She's like, I'm not doing anything. And then, at that point, the microwave comes on. Dude, and this was all kind of freaky, man. Like, as this yeah. is going on. This is scary, like, watching it household. It reminds you of the electric lady, you know, the Rainboy type stuff. In fact, in the Rainboy segment, I think they did have footage from this segment, that's the one where the blanket, you know, goes up on by itself. And I was always like, what is that from? No, it's and the electric then, lady that you're thinking of that shows that. Oh, the electric lady shows that. Yeah, yeah and I was always annoyed because on the Ultimate Collection, they showed that scene, but they didn't have the scene on the Ultimate Collection. So I'm like, why did they why'd they have that in there? But I guess, and you know. And now we know what, which, what it is. Yeah, which I thought was really cool because I, like, skipped over this one when I was going through this season here. Um, so I'm glad that Mike pointed it out um because this is a great segment it should have really great been they did a great job recreating all these psycho all the appliances going haywire yeah i don't know how practically this isn't see this is before cgi so exactly practical effects yeah it was amazing um so the microwave came on the tv the little tiny tv above the microwave came on um the then the dishwasher came on uh, the Joan, the mom was like, what the fuck, you know? And, and so she unplugs the TV and it remains. Washing rema machine. Yeah. Washing machine also came on. I was going to get to that. Um, the TV <laughs> remained on after she unplugged it. And so yeah. at that point she knew something was going on. In the other room, the washing machine was going just ape shit. Um, the other foster kids enjoyed it and thought it was a real treat. But Joan knew that something was definitely amiss. So they, at first they thought it was like a power surge. Which is a logical conclusion, but yeah. unplugging the TV and it's still on, it's like, that's some pretty gnarly yeah. power surge. I mean... Yeah. You, I, I love the whole uh, thing where the foster kids seem to be enjoying it. Yeah. I can, I can just imagine that in my head, you know, the fo the foster parents are like, what the hell? This is this is not right. The kids are like, yay! Ha ha ha, yay, yay, ha ha! <laughs> Sorry, that was my attempt at childlike laughter. Did it do anything for you? Yeah, it was creepy. <laughs> no, sorry. It was meant to be whimsical and fun. Um, and it was the opposite of that. All right, well, moving on. Um, Sound like a Furby. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, man. I'm trying. I'm using my own practical effects. So when husband John returned home, the uh, the washer was still going haywire, and John telephoned bruce claggett come on people with the last names here you're killing me claggett uh, damn claggett um 
He came over and went to the main breaker box. Uh, Bruce Claggett did or, along with John. They looked for any hot spots or anything that was wrong, and they didn't find anything wrong. As soon as Bruce Claggett walked outside of the house, the electricity started acting up once again with the lamp that was by the door. Um, but um, Tina had also happened to be sitting next to this lamp, and the lamp was controlled by a switch in the wall, so Bruce was like he expected it was a teenage prank. Just didn't make any sense so um what they did was they put some tape on all the switches in the living room where tina was was sitting which i mean instead of putting the tape on all the switches why wouldn't you just be like tina seriously like like no 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 fucking around like are you doing this or are you not like for real yeah i mean well the thing is he did kind of say that in the segment like the the claggett guy he was like Oh come on, Tina! You know what are you doing? That he kind of, kind of said something like that. Yeah, but I mean, they went ahead and they went the extra mile and they put tape on all the switches in the living room. Like, if this was all fake, why would they go the extra mile? Why would there be more than just one person who has said that these things have happened? Not just the photographer, not just Tina, not just her family. There's other people involved that have said you know, that they've seen some pretty crazy stuff. Uh, later, you know, well, we'll get to this later, but there is some evidence that, you know, some things were faked, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Sometimes people could fake something because they just want you to go away. <laughs> right. So, as the taped up all light switches, they're standing there at the doorway. The tape, and in the segment, again, practical effect, but it looks great. The tape flies mm -hmm. off the switch, and the switch flips up. Mm -hmm. No sign of scotch tape left. Creepy as shit. Bruce Claggett yep. finally gave up and left. He's like, uh, I don't know what's going on. This is something unexplainable. Goodbye. He's like, dang, Nabbit. Claggett yeah. is out of here. <laughs> ah, this Claggett's out of here. I tell you, I don't know what's going on. That'll be thirty-three fifty for my time. In another scene, the next scene rather, they're in the dining room and the high chair that one of the babies is in is pushed away from the table with the baby in it. Like someone just pushed it away from the table. And then at the, around that same time, Tina gets dumped out of her chair like she got pushed out. And then around that time, it's like these are all like bam, 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 rapid fire things. And then right after she falls out of a chair, a glass flies across the living room and shatters onto the floor. Again, practical effects looked great. No CGI yeah. needed here. Um... Tina went out for a walk because she was, you know, she's getting upset by this. And then mysteriously, things in the house got quiet. And then the mom thought maybe there was a connection. And she started thinking back to her childhood with the eraser incidences and the teachers complaining about Tina. After Tina returned home, she realized that she was the fulcrum for the bizarre occurrences. The clock started flipping through the numbers on her nightstand. It was one of those old school clocks where, like, the numbers... You know what I'm talking about? Those clocks are weird. Yeah. What are the name for those kind of clocks? It's like... Be I don't know. Before there were digital clocks, there were the ones that had the digital numbers, but they were on, like, little flaps. I'd actually like to get one of those clocks. Because you always see those clocks in movies, like, if, if there's, like, a deadline that... Uh, needs to be met for dramatic effect. The camera will be right on it, and then like the final flap flips over to like noon or something. It's like dong, you know. Like anyway, you know what I'm talking about, Mike, right? 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 Uh, uh, maybe... I'm dying over here, Mike. Help me out here. <laughs> uh, <it's... laughs> 
No, uh-huh. not really. No, well, anyway, people, uh, just, you know, get that image in your mind that I kind of vaguely drew, I guess. Um... <laughs> So uh, the clock started flipping through the numbers. Uh, glasses flew across the room again in the kitchen. Uh, the parents, Joan and John, almost started. Uh, became they almost became like blasé about it, like just very like yeah. Um, and then they have the scene where the the uh, mom was cooking like eggs in the frying pan, and the egg carton was next to the frying pan, and one of the eggs came out of the carton and just flew up and hit the ceiling and exploded. So, like, that just reminds me of Ghostbusters. So, it's like you expect the egg to start cooking on the counter, and then and then they'll go in and open the fridge, and then they'll see, you know, this, like, terror dog, and it'll go, zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a confession to make. Um, I've never seen Ghostbusters. Really? Yeah, I've never seen it. So, I don't get that reference. Well. Yep, so... You should see that. I know. There's ghosts in it, and, you know. I've never seen Die Hard. Ever seen Die Hard? (laughs) Dude, I'm telling you, if I told you... You've never seen Bruce Willis going, BK, motherfucker. (laughs) I'm telling you. If I told you the list of movies I haven't seen, you would not want to be doing this podcast with me right now. No, I'd be fine with that. It's okay. Just, Just watch them sometime. I, I'm I'm working on it. So anyway, um, you know, the mom was like, Tana, why didn't you put the eggs in the refrigerator when you're done? Because they kind of knew that this happened with the eggs. They didn't know what was going on, but they knew like, okay, you got to put the eggs up because they just fly out of the carton. This is where it gets fucking nuts, in my yeah. opinion. This is the most craziest part of this whole segment. Mm-hmm. She puts the eggs in the, in the refrigerator. The egg comes through the door like there's some sort of portal in the time and space continuum and it just comes through the, the solid door and smashes against the wall. Like like some kind of hole opened up in the door. The egg flew through seamlessly, untouched, and then smashed against the wall. And again... Like it's Nightcrawler or some shit. Right, yeah, exactly. A version of Nightcrawler able to teleport through walls and, and stuff. Yeah, or that villain in Spider-Man in the Spider-Man cartoon who could make black holes appear and he could like warp through them and all. Um... It, oh it, god that guy you yeah, yeah you know who i'm talking about i don't remember his name but yeah yeah that guy that'd be a cool character seeing one of the upcoming movies Is he called black hole or something i don't know <laughs> i remember that episode though it was pretty neat yeah. spider-man would be like on the other side of the screen and he'd like make a black hole right next to him and he'd punch Are you the, black about hole. the 90s yeah the 90s one yeah 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 and the black hole would open up behind spider-man his fist would come out and hit him like that was pretty cool um, so, but, like, the show still makes it look good when the egg comes out of the door. Like, it still looks good, but, I mean, it's like, come on, man. And she's like, and then, and then the, like, shows Tina, and she's like, what can I say? It happened. You know, we all saw it happen. I, I don't know what, what else to tell you. At this point, rightfully so, they call on a priest to f- perform an exorcism on the house and on Tina herself. When they were walking, uh, or when they were talking to the priest, the couch slid out behind the priest, and, you know, like, the couch was against the wall, and then it just slides out. And the priest said... There's some things we don't understand, and that's all he could do. Like, I love that's... that. The priest is just like, yeah, uh, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> well, some things I don't understand. Do three Hail, Hail Marys and call me in the morning. See you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I've seen Amityville Horror. I've seen Exorcist. I don't I don't want to I don't want to be caught in the line of fire here. <laughs> uh, at the same time, Tina's physical symptoms worsened. Uh, she was experiencing stomach. She was experiencing stomach pains and headaches, etc. 
Then uh, the infamous picture scene. Uh, some journalists came over to profile Tina, and um, there was an Afghan on the floor. These journalists are talking to her. You know, she's sitting in the chair in the living room. All of a sudden, this Afghan, this Afghan lifts off the floor and covers her head. And again, in the scene, totally practical effects, totally freaky. Like, yeah. good lord, freak me the fuck out. Even seeing it now, like I would not show let my if I had a kid, I would not let my kid watch this segment. It would probably give them nightmares. Um, yeah. Just seeing inanimate objects come to life like that is always very disturbing to me. That's why the Beauty and the Beast, is is it really cute to you where all these inanimate objects are singing and moving around and talking? Like, if that happened in real life, you'd be scared shitless. This wouldn't be cute if the candelabra started talking to you. I mean, I guess the animation, whole animated thing makes it... Uh... I know. But it, but if it really happened in real life, it'd be something like the Evil Evil Dead Two, you know, where all this stuff on the wall that's all coming to life and talking and whatever. Well, I mean, the Beast is essentially Bigfoot, so that'd freak me out too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> the photographer, uh, had you know w- that was with them with the journalists, he sat there, you know, after the Afghan situation, he sat there with his finger on the shutter button with the camera to his face because he wanted to snap a picture of this happening in real time. So he waited with his finger on the shutter button for 25 minutes for something to happen. Then his mind got tired. He brought the camera down. He starts looking the other way. As soon as that happens, the the phone flies across the room. And the photographer says, whatever this thing was, it knew I had a camera and it did not want its picture taken. So then what the photographer did is he held his camera back up to his his face with his finger on the shutter button, and then he turns his head away as if he wasn't paying attention, and then at that very point, the phone flies across the room again, but this time his finger was on the shutter, pow, he got the picture, and it is a picture that the world ended up seeing. And this is an infamous picture because... The, this is the picture that a lot of these skeptics, in particular James Randi, who is well known by everyone, it's like the ultimate skeptic. You know, this is the guy who's gone around, done multiple books, debunked multiple things. But the thing is, with the skeptic side of this, they have still yet to recreate the the image themselves. They say it's fake. They say it's clearly a fake. They say it's clearly a hoax. It's clearly some gamma trick. It's clearly this. And it's been over 30 years later in the in the skeptics inquirer, whatever, the ske- group of skeptics, you know, that's out there. This I think it's called like the uh, the CSI. <laughs> they have not been able to recreate this obvious hoax. Oh, the skeptics so. can't rec- recreate something, uh, and it's based on a bunch of eyewitness, credible eyewitnesses, and they're calling it a hoax. So there's only one thing I have to say about that. <laughs> so, so yeah, James Randi, according to his report on the case, he says there are seven photographs out of 36 taken by the Columbus Dispatch staff newspaper Fred Shannon. I guess the dog's really excited. Yeah, that's my dogs, everybody. They're they're now uh, world famous. <laughs> uh, uh, photographer Fred Shannon of the one of the two phones in flight after they'd just taken flight landing on the floor. Frames 24, 25, 30, and 31, 32 show the phone in flight are hanging out of view on the other side of the chair. And in frames 12 and 29, the phone is already on the floor. In some of the frames, both phones are off shown off the table, though it's not clear to whether force of spontaneous telekinesis affected the second phone or was simply knocked off as the other one took flight. 
there were more instances that were not captured on camera. <laughs> hey, shut the fuck up! <laughs> Two of the photographs show a six-year-old female child, Lisa, standing at Tina's left on the other side of the phone table. She was one of the four foster children living temporarily in the rest home at the time. In one photo, frame 24, she is watching Tina just as the phone flew and hung over the chair's armrest on Tina's right. And in the other frame 12, she's looking at the photographer just after the phone had hit the floor. All this young girl had to do was announce to everyone in the room, I saw her throw the phone, and it would have all been over. But she did not. First of all, this is a six-year-old. Why would I mean, how are we going to get a six-year-old to really be able to get involved in this mass conspiracy in the first place? And let alone remember, you know... Oh, I shouldn't give it away. On the contrary, in the book Unleashed, which is a book that uh, William Roll helped write. <laughs> what a surprise. Uh, Good old Willie Roll. PK phenomenon in the house. TK, uh, Tina was not, the only, was not the one who called the journalist in to investigate. Her adoptive parents did. Tina's adoptive father, John Resch, died in 1987, and her adopted mother, Joan Resch, in 2000. The Rushes were well regarded in the community and had the local gov and by the local government for providing a foster home for children in need. Over thirty one year span they cared for over two hundred and fifty foster children. Jesus. They were a stable, altruistic couple, not prone to wild beliefs. Like many parents, they had plenty of experience over the years with children under their care, whose only goal was to seek attention, which is what the skeptics have alleged was Tina's goal. Strange things were happening, objects crashing, lights going on and off, in empty rooms of the house while Tina was in their presence. Joan, John and Joan Resch finally came to the conclusion that what was happening went beyond a normal explanation, beyond the ways laws of physics normally function. There, Tina would have had to have been a highly skilled child sleight-of-hand artist with much practice, set-up time, and accomplices to have perfectly pulled off flying phone after flying phone incident, seven photographed in front of witnesses, and many other events in the home and elsewhere while undergoing testing. And this is what the skeptics on James Randi, he seems to believe that it's, this is a quote from him, by the way, he says, the Rush Poltergeist, and Wikipedia just automatically just believes that this is all just BS. Like, they just think this is just automatically a hoax. They don't even really talk about the other side of the case. They just say it's an alleged Poltergeist case. The Rush Poltergeist turned out to be so elusive that no one ever actually saw a single object even start to move of its own accord. Bullshit. There's plenty of plenty of people who said they saw stuff uh, that were actually interviewed on this on, in this segment. Uh, this included the newspaper photographer who found out that if he watched an object, it stubbornly refused to budge. So he would hold his camera and look away. That's not really what he said, but okay. One of the photos obtained in this way was distributed by the Associated Press and touted widely as a proof of the reality of the phenomenon. Examined closely, the photographic evidence in this case strongly suggested, according to James Randi, that Tina was faking the occurrences by simply throwing the phone and other flying objects when no one was looking. Like the, other, like, uh, the writer who I've been quoting from, uh, his name is uh, James Conrad. Uh, the, all the little girl, the little girl could have just said, she's throwing the phone. And I'm pretty sure I think you could see that. I'm just saying, she had to be really good at sleight of hand. Um, and so that's what he thinks. He thinks they just threw the phone when no one was looking. Randy's careful analysis of other photos, many unpublished, of Tina and her flying phone, strengthened the conclusion that she was faking. Interestingly, the editor of the Columbus Dispatch, Luke Feck, embarrassed by the revelation that he and his paper were taken by an oh-so-obvious fake, refused Randy permission to print the photos he'd given them earlier, 
an apparent attempt to suppress the evidence of Tina's trickery in the newspaper's credibility. Yeah, well, that might not actually be 100% proof that it's a fake to begin with. I could see why maybe he wouldn't want to post this, as it would just make him look bad, even if it was evidence that it was a fake. But then again, it's just one of those things that, could it be fake? Maybe. But if, if there's if, until they recreate it, show me. Show me, skeptics. Recreate this. Get the Mythbusters on this case and have them recreate this photo. Then I will I will start to automatically believe that this didn't happen and there's no actual basis behind these claims of telekinesis or spontaneous psychokinesis. I choose to have an open mind. I don't choose to close my mind because I don't have automatically have a scientific explanation for it. And William Roll doesn't exactly just come out of the woodwork for just any old psychic phenomenon or ghost story. He's kind of a big deal. So the well, fact Dave Randy tried to discredit him too in a podcast interview saying, you know, they they've fallen out or whatever and he thinks that he was just babying her or whatever. And for me with James Randy, it's like, you know, just like a skeptic, they're gonna try to embellish what they see in order to make it look like they're correct to make it look like you know to make their their thoughts and their opinions stand out the most and be the ones that are validated the same thing happens with people who want to try to prove that this is real so there's a lot of embellishment going on on both sides so i can't just side with the skeptic every single time and I, I can't just always side with the people who believe what happened either i mean look what happened with the ghost boy thing so it, it's one of those your own conclusion and i personally don't have an explanation for this this these these photos they're on they're in the unknown of unknown origin category to me until i see for sure that this is something that can easily be faked i'm not gonna say it's fake that's yeah. just how I am. Yeah, I mean, my whole thing about this is my main, I guess my main criteria for believing these kind of cases are really from the witnesses themselves. Um, what do they have to gain? What are their histories? Uh, you look at a case like Diane Lebanek with the Canadian UFO and the Guardian tapes. You know, at first she seemed like some kindly country girl but then once you really get into it, you know, she had, had kind of had connections with um, with people who had been involved in some other shit with some other UFO sighting before. And she she participated in the reenactment on Unsolved Mysteries. So obviously she and she had all those UFO books in her in her, you know, in the basement or in the cupboard or whatever. Right. That, so, that. you know, you, you start to uncover that there's something more to her than what meets the eye. You look at the... Or Denise Jones, right, yeah. The Ghost Boy segment, you find out that the mom, you know, it was, was writing a book based on this and had embellished the fuck out of every any kind of credibility that could have been had was the lost by the... Devil car The devil car, over. my favorite... <laughs> You guys should go back and listen to these segments we're talking about, especially Ghost Boy. That one, that was just, you know, just for anyone who thinks that I automatically believe everything I, I hear, like, no, those were two, that was a ghost one and a UFO one where by the end I was like, no, I don't really think this is le legitimate. So, but with this case, 
you got fo- these, you know, John and Joan, these foster parents who had fostered, like, what, over 200 kids, as you said, who had, you know, no flair for the dramatic or anything like that. And they're just reporting what they saw. And then you got a, an electrician that John or, or Bruce Claggett, and then you got these report, these small town reporters, these all small town happenings, and they're all saying that this stuff happened. I mean, that's that's my main, I guess, body of proof right there, and that's what. Yeah, I, really I mean, look at. that's the thing too. I mean, uh, James Conrad continues. He says, of course, if a detractor's goal is to advance the position, that all the witnesses must be lying, mistaken, or incompetent. Because that is far easier to accept than the laws of physics being amended with new information obtained outside of a white-coated scientist laboratory, then nothing will satisfy. And I, I agree with that. I mean, yes, there was evidence of, okay, they did catch her trying to throw a, throwing a lamp, but that was because these people just would not leave. And her mother was like, just, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. You know, this is just, and they're like, we, we're not going to leave until we see something. Which, and which so, that right there, I mean, your First Amendment right, I mean, or your Second Amendment right or whatever, couldn't you be like, uh, you're going to leave or you're going to get a uh, catch some lead, motherfucker? <laughs> you're, exactly. You're going to get the fuck out of my house is what you're going to do. I mean, shit. And I haven't seen these negatives that James Randi is talking about that prove that it's fake. He says something where there's one that you clearly see. This is what this is more uh, from uh, James Randi, where he says... Um, Randy characterized the situation as a hoax by an adolescent girl seeking attention, which, by the way, these these parents have dealt with plenty of kids who are trying to get it, seek attention, uh, saying examination available material indicates that fraudulent means of or perfectly explainable methods have been employed to provide the media with sensational details about that in an otherwise trivial manner. Randy examined a roll of photos taken by press photographers, and he and he says that they showed the girl's foot hooked beneath the sofa that it purportedly moved by itself. First off, if the girl... So her foot is underneath there. I put my feet underneath my... My feet are underneath my chair right now. Does that automatically mean that I'm going to try to push the chair? I mean, that's something... I don't know if that's enough of evidence to prove that she shoved a couch. And this is a little... This is a girl we're talking about. An adolescent girl. Yeah, I'm supposed to believe that with one fucking foot... She's going to push an entire sofa across the room. On a glass in a picture frame, the allegedly shattered on its own while in her hands, it's already broken before she even picked it up. Well, they could have had a crack in it, and then it could have broken into more pieces later. That's a possibility as well. But the foot under the sofa thing, I'm like, James, do you, do you think she's Wonder Woman or some shit? I'm just serious. James Randi. That, <laughs> that guy's name sounds familiar. Wasn't he also involved in the Bentwaters thing? Wasn't he one of the skeptics they had on the Bentwaters? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Randy. He sounds familiar. Uh, I just had to share that because I'm just how, you know, this is the skeptic saying it's clearly obvious that this is a hoax. And he's saying, oh, her foot is underneath the couch and she shoved it. How in the fuck is she going to do that? <laughs> She's not She-Hulk. <laughs> so what's the update that you have for this story? Okay. Uh, you want to mention 
Uh, the other stuff is in the segment. Uh, I think uh, D- Dr. William Roll game got involved and then started, uh, you know, working with her. And he believes that there's definitely more, you know, to the case and so on and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the update. All right. This is pretty shocking and tragic. All right. Uh, Tina Resch uh, married and divorced twice, uh, changing her name to Christina Boyer. And she had a three-year-old daughter named Amber. In April of 1992, Amber was found dead, suspected to have been beaten to death. Boyer and David Heron, her boyfriend of a few months, were arrested and tried for the murder of Amber. And the medical examiner at Heron's trial testified that the cause of Amber's death was blunt force trauma she received to her head, inflicted shortly before her death. Both Tina and Heron Heron blamed each other for the injuries. Tina was charged with aggravated battery, and in October 1994, rather than face trial on the possibility of a death sentence, she agreed to a plea bargain called the Alford Plea, negotiated by her attorney and district attorney, Peter Skandalakis. She entered an Alford plea, which she pleaded guilty while maintaining her innocence because she was scared. She was afraid of being put on, you know, put to death. And uh, because she took the Alford plea, she didn't really have a trial in front of a jury. She received a life sentence plus 20 years with the possibility of parole. David Heron was convicted of cruelty to children and sentenced to 20 years. He was released from the Dewey State Prison on November 16, 2011. Tina, as far as I know, or she likes to be called Christina because Tina was her childhood name, She's been incarcerated at the Pulaski State Prison in Hawkinsville, Georgia, ever since then. And um, she's been denied parole as recently as like 2015, uh, April 14th of 2015, for instance. Good God. I, I know nothing about this, about the murder case. But what's really interesting and also really tragic about this not only just the murder of the kid is that there might be some evidence to suggest that she's innocent so she was found not found guilty by a jury and after the trial and the trial process after waiting over two and a half years in the carroll county jail for a trial which is pretty fucking ridiculous if you ask me good lord it, her court-appointed her court-appointed lawyer Jimmy Barry, whom she rarely saw, suddenly visited her and advised her that the safest course of action would be accept a plea ag- agreement he had worked out with the district attorney Skanadakis and assistant DA Allen. With the start of the trial just days away, on a date strangely chosen by the court to be Halloween, October thirty-first, nineteen ninety-four, and facing death by electrocution, Boyer decided to save her life. She had to accept a plea agreement. An Alfred plea, like I was saying. Um, in a handwritten letter to her friends in jail, she wrote, I know that my decision to go ahead Monday with the Alfred plea may seem like I'm giving up, but please try to understand that I'm scared. Boyer passed a polygraph test administered by a court-certified examiner at the county jail less than 24 hours before her sentencing that indicated her innocence. Yes, lie detector tests can be faked. That is that is something that is a possibility. Um, that doesn't mean that this was the case. The court paid for the test, and the positive results were entered into the court record at her sentencing on October 24, 1994. Despite this, the prosecutor and judge allowed the plea deal and sentencing to proceed. The sentencing judge resigned in 2012 while being investigated for allegations of judicial misconduct. 
unrelated to this case, but still, there might be somewhat of a relation there. I mean, he was investigated for judicial misconduct. Jimmy Barry, Boyer's court-appointed defense attorney, never contacted or interviewed psychologist Jeannie Langle, the main alibi witness in the case, whom Boyer was with working on a book project for nearly six hours when her daughter died while in the custody of her new boyfriend, David Heron, who was babysitting that day. So she had a clear alibi, and her court-appointed defense attorney never contacted or interviewed her alibi witness. During this time on the case, Barry filed a letter of conflict with the court indicating that he was working on 88 other cases in Georgia, including another high-profile murder case at the same time he was representing Boyer. He never had a death penalty conviction in any of his previous cases, and a plea agreement agreement ensured quickly that there would be no trial, as record would hold, and he would get back to his 88 other cases. Because apparently, fuck this, you know, uh, Christina Boyer, her case, because I got all these other high-profile cases I need to get to. Because she doesn't have any money, she's poor, I don't give a shit. So it seems like to me, which is honestly pretty infuriating. District Attorney Peter J. Scott Kananakis and the Sheriff Jack Bell, who arrested Boyer in 1992, despite having access to contrary evidence from the medical examiner, were running political campaigns that year. They won their elections that November. The new boyfriend, David Heron, seven years older than Boyer, would not take a polygraph test. He was the only one with a three-year-old Amber during the last six hours of her life. In the hospital emergency room, he was heard by Boyer and the psychologist Gene Langle making the comment, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A jury never heard that evidence. The jury in David Heron's case found him innocent of murder on February 3rd, 1995, at the conclusion of his week-long trial, essentially because Boyer had already accepted a plea bargain. In fact, Harry's attor- Heron's attorney made a point of passing around a certified copy of Boyer's signed plea sentencing document so every member of the jury could hold it in their hands and look at it. The fact that District Attorney Peter J. Skandalakis changed his mind certainly after Heron's trial removed the death penalty possibility from his case, possibly also influenced the jury's decision in Heron's favor. The jury instead found Heron guilty of the lesser charge of failing to seek medical treatment, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison, serving just over 19 and a half years. One of Boyer's two convictions for which sentenced to 20 years was for, quoting the indictment, causing bodily harm to Amber, Amber Bennett by seriously defiguring a member of her body to wet her pancreas. However, according to pub- her public... According to the public testimony of the medical examiner at Heron's trial, who was a state of Georgia's chief medical witness, the injury caused, according to Boyer, by a fall on a big wheel's tricycle handlebar while playing was so minor that there would have been no external symptoms that it would have and it would have healed on its own. Serious disfigurement means permanent damage of a severe nature. It was a charge, it was a charge in the indictment not supported by the medical examiner's evidence. Despite this district attorney who swore that under oath the indictment was true, and sentencing judge allowed the conviction and 20-year sentence to take place, apparently contrary to Georgia law. Uh, Heron's attorney at trial, he said, you wouldn't say that the pancreas was seriously disfigured. Medical examiner, I would not use that terminology. Hey, so you just went into a whole other unsolved mystery all of its own that begat fr- uh, another unsolved mystery. I know, that's what I'm saying. It's interesting. There's an extra added th- added thing to it. Yeah. So she's in jail at this current moment. Yeah. Jeez. That's so crazy because she seems so fucking innocent in the segment, you know, with her little bowl haircut. And she's like, yeah. you know, 
uh, I can't get to have any friends and nobody wants to date me because they're going to think I'm crazy. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you're, you're kind of cute. I, w- I would I would take you out on a date. And now she's killing her kid. Or apparently, you know, someone did. And I don't know. What the fuck? I think it was her boyfriend. I really think that's what it was. He was he was the only one that was there with the kid. In the six hours, you know, when the kid ended up dead. Um Boyer's testimony says that she was there writing the book with a psychiatrist for six hours. And then she came home and the baby was already dead. The kid was already dead. Jeez, I don't, I don't even. Her murder conviction was not for inflicting any physical injury to her daughter, to her daughter. (laughs) I'm so worked up. I can't say things properly. No one in this case is convicted of hitting the child with deadly force, but for failing to seek medical attention for the head injury that caused her death. However, it happened, whether by human violence or home accident covered up by the babysitting boyfriend. But the thing is, it's like, that's not really murder. So why? And then, yeah, Boyer was at the home of psychologist Jeannie Langle and had been there, been there for nearly six hours working on the manuscript for a book about her earlier life experiences as a teenager being researched by science, which ties into the earlier case that we talked about. And when she returned to the trailer home of Perrin, her boyfriend, who did not own a phone, she found him standing on the front porch with her daughter inside a bed already deceased. She then rushed the child into the emergency room, but then it was too late. Good Lord. And this is this is an actual uh, real Georgia law here. Uh, State of Georgia Code 1615. Every person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. No person shall be convicted of a crime unless each element of such crime is proved beyond a reasonable doubt. I cannot say that each element of this crime was proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And then there's more actual laws that it seems like the people who worked on this case fucking blatantly ignored. Or didn't follow and broke them. State of Georgia Code 16340. The defense of alibi involves the impossibility of the accused's presence at the scene of the offense at the time of its commission. The range of the evidence is in respect to time and place must be such as reasonably to exclude the possibility of presence. And lastly, Boyer was a financially poor single mother and she and Amber were living on food stamps. They were in cash for necessity. She occasionally engaged in activities as an adult film actress in the local community, although she was never arrested for prostitution. With such a reputation problem, especially in the pre-internet early 1990s, not being a Georgia native with relatives in the area, her chances of being looked upon fairly by a conservative Southern jury in Bible belts in a Bible Belt state and a child murder trial were fraught with uncertainty. This uncertainty may have contributed to the decision by her lawyer. He was familiar with local moral standards. Wait, and so, ju- so you're telling me that Tina did porn at one point? Yeah. Oh, my God. What the fuck happened to her <laughs> after her electric psychic incident? Jeez, it's gotten so adult. Yeah. Started out so innocent. Yeah, so uh, the lawyer said, you know, uh, that this adult film stuff might have contributed to the decision by her lawyer, who is familiar with the local moral standards and juries, to not attempt a defense and negotiate a plea deal deal with the possibility of parole every seven years instead. I wonder if I can find her adult film out there. <laughs> Erotic Psychics, Volume One. <laughs> you know, but, she, you know, she probably played that angle up. Maybe, maybe, but from what I 
personally think. And uh, once again, thanks to James Conrad, uh, jamesconrad.com for all of this research uh, for this for this case and, and for the legal case and everything. Um, I, I, th- I honestly think she's she did not do that. It's dead. Do not think she murdered that kid. So we do think that she has psychic abilities. We do not think she's a murderer. That's what I think. But I know a lot of people just automatically assume because of what they read on Wikipedia and they don't know all the facts and don't know all the evidence. And they just think, oh, well, she's a scumbag. She's rotten in prison or whatever for killing her kid. But it's not as simple as that. It's it's crazy. The murder case is every bit as unknown and up in the air as the, you know, the the unexplained uh, spontaneous psychokinesis yeah i don't know that's 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 nuts um i don't really have anything else to say about that i mean except for that's that's a crazy that's definitely a crazy reveal uh, about all the additional information that's really sad you don't you usually don't hear um people who have previously been on unsolved mysteries like doing like getting involved in crazy shit like that you know after the fact uh, so that might be why the Se- it's not on the segment is not on the box set that's the only thing yeah I can ha- that's a good point yeah because that is kind of uh questionable uh, as far as uh you know the, her moral uh character as do you actually believe well i mean i she did it I, I, I don't know um but i'm just saying as far as like pl- publicity is concerned maybe that's yeah why exactly they, yeah that's why they kept it off so what do you think with the legal part of it what's your opinion Based on the evidence provided. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like the boyfriend. It's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty obvious there. I mean, and what's really upsetting is he got released. Yeah, he's out. I mean, there, you know, our legal system. I mean, there's so many cases of people getting, you know, thrown behind bars who who don't belong there, and you know, it's it's always really. Uh, tr- there was one on uh, season five where there's this guy who I don't think he did it, but he was uh, mentally challenged, and you know, it was some small town, and there was the sheriff was into, you know, bank, robbing banks, <laughs> so yeah, and he still didn't get. Uh, plea plea bargain and wasn't released or anything like that later. He didn't get another trial. That's sad too, is when there's absolute, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that this is a miscarriage of justice and nothing happens. Yeah, that shit's fucked up. But um, I think I'm losing steam. Uh, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. It's a little bit longer. Sorry, folks. It's just there was just so much extra stuff with the Tina Resch case. It's why I wanted to save it for last. Yeah, now I understand. Just crazy just developments, you know. It's crazy enough that she might have had this psychokinetic episodes, you know, when she was uh, at a certain age. And that's another thing people say, skeptics, well, oh, it's convenient, it stopped. You know, and I'm like, well, it, it stopped. It, you, that's From a lot of these cases that I've read, they do stop at a certain age. They just don't, it just doesn't happen anymore. Right. And it happens because of some kind of specific, there's stress involved and so on. And it seems to me that she had a really rough life. Even it, it seemed like the best times of her life might have been with her foster parents. But it seems like from what I've read too, she had a rough childhood and uh, possibly was even uh, sexually abused. So, you know, there's just a lot of really just messed up stuff. Unsolved Mysteries will a lot of times downplay stuff, too, that doesn't necessarily have to do exactly with the case. 
Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know. But this murder thing didn't happen, case didn't t- happen until after the episode aired, if I remember correctly. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, but as far as, like, her rough life growing up and stuff, that's something that, uh, you know, if, if it doesn't have, ex- you know, if it doesn't directly have to do with yeah, the psychic exactly. episode, they're not really going to harp on it. Well, exactly. Understandably so. Right. So I just I just people to keep an open mind, whether it's on the murder case or, or whether it's on the, the case of spontaneous psychokinesis. Um, I don't know. Like on the murder case, I'm more I, from what I've seen from this evidence that I've seen for the research that was uh, done online. I lean towards that being, you know, I, I lean towards her being innocent Um because it seems like she has a viable alibi and nobody seems to really want to really investigate it. I mean, what the fuck? Uh, so, but with the unexplained aspect, it's unexplained. I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. The photo is of unknown origin to me until I see the skeptics inquire a group of people recreate the image themselves. And, um, you can find that image on our uh, on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash uncovering unsolved mysteries. That's only one of many. There's multiple different Im- images. So that's not just it's not just one image. Yeah, there's a bunch so, of different ones. This is before Photoshop. And yes, they can there are evident there are instances of photo manipulation and trickery before Photoshop, but this seems like something to be really difficult for some kid to figure out and do and for everyone who is come in contact her would just go along with it. I mean, it just seems pretty far fetched. It's even more far fetched to me that this is just a, a whole conspiracy theory. Everyone's lying about it and it's all a hoax and it's always been a hoax and so on. But who knows? It could be a hoax. I mean, people do think the Loch Ness Monster picture was a hoax for decades. So who knows? Until I know for sure, it's un- it's unknown, <laughs> unexplained. And I think I think Mike capped it off beautifully. It's a mystery. Um, all right, folks, that's all we got for this week's podcast. I feel like this was for this a pretty double stuffed <laughs> double podcast. <laughs> yeah, double stuffed. Uh, add additional cheese, uh, extra gravy. I know there was people. Some people are actually saying, you know, man, you know, I would like a longer podcast. Well, here you go. Some people want longer, some people want shorter, some people want, you know, black, some people want white, some people want... This isn't going to be a normal occurrence, it's just this case just had so much extra stuff that I just could not possibly, I could not not discuss. Mike had to sink extra. his teeth into this. Absolutely. And he did. And and now I have a huge bite mark on my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I, I think you... Uh, you should, you should the, see some other people then, maybe. Yeah, getting some kinky stuff. Well, maybe I, uh, when Tina gets out of jail, I'll hit her up because it sounds like she's into that whole adult film thing. Maybe. God, that's just so tasteless. I know, I know, but that's it's who I am, and and apparently who she is. So. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, all the time we have. You can find Mike on YouTube by uh, searching, uh, well, just typing in the URL, youtube.com slash OCP communications. He reviews movies and he rants, and, and man, does he rant. And he, he goes on about uh, all the just classics of our day and some unknowns as well. It's a very entertaining channel. You should check that out. You can find me on YouTube as well. 
I don't have a fancy fucking URL like Mike does because I don't have <laughs> enough subscribers. So you can just type in Dancing with Ghosts into the YouTube search bar or the Overstimulation Station, and you'll eventually find me on there. I do game reviews and taste tests and... I do a, re, a review of the old Unsolved Mysteries versus the revamped piece of shit with Dennis Farina. That's a whole other topic, but uh, that's how you can find more of us if you just can't get enough. Um, I have like a list here of your requests, so don't think I don't have it. Um, I, the ones that I have so far, you know what? I'm not even going to spoil it. I'm not even going to tell you what I have written down here, but every time you people send stuff, I write it down, so we're going to get to them eventually. 